We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new amazing story every day. Thank you for listening, and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. For seven months now, Robert Neville had been stringing garlic together into aromatic necklaces and hanging them outside his house without the remotest idea of why they chased the vampires away. It was time to find out why. He looked at the text. The characteristic odor and flavor of garlic are due to an essential oil amounting to about 0.2% of the weight which consists mainly of allyl sulfide and allyl isothiocyanate. Maybe the answer was there. The book continued. Allyl sulfide may be prepared by heating mustard oil and potassium sulfide. He thudded down into the living room chair, a disgusted breath shuddering his long frame. And where the hell do I get mustard oil and potassium sulfide, he asked himself and the equipment to prepare them. That's great, he railed. The first step and you fall flat on your face. He pushed himself up disgustedly and headed for the bar, but halfway through pouring a drink he slammed down the bottle. No, by God, he had no intention of going on like a blind man, plodding down a path of brainless existence until old age or accident took him. Either he found the answer or he ditched the whole mess, life included. He checked his watch, 10.20 a.m., still time. He checked the telephone directory. There was a place that might be of use to him in Inglewood. Four hours later, and he had the allyl sulfide inside a hypodermic syringe, and in himself the first sense of real accomplishment since his forced isolation began. A little excited, he ran to his car and drove out past the area he'd cleared out and marked with chalk. He knew it was more than possible that some vampires might have wandered into the cleared area and were hiding there again, but he had no time for searching. Parking his car, he went into a house and walked into the bedroom. A young woman lay there, a coating of blood on her mouth. Flipping her over, Neville pulled up her skirt and injected the allyl sulfide into her soft, fleshy buttock, then turned her over and stepped back. For half an hour he stood there watching her. Nothing happened. This doesn't make sense, his mind argued. I hang garlic around the house and the vampires stay away, and the characteristic of garlic is the oil I've injected in her. He flung down the syringe and, trembling with rage, went home again a cross. He held one in his hand, gold and shiny. This, too, kept the vampires away. Why? There was only one way to find out. He took the woman from her bed, pretending not to notice the question posed in his mind. Why do you always experiment on women? 
He didn't care to admit the inference had any validity. She just happened to be the first one he'd come across. What about the man in the living room? For God's sake, he flared, I'm not going to rape the woman. Once he might have termed this conscience. Now it was only an annoyance. Morality, after all, had fallen with society. Nevertheless, he wouldn't let himself pass the afternoon near her. After binding her to a chair, he secluded himself in the garage. She was wearing a torn black dress, and too much was visible as she breathed. At last, mercifully, night came. He locked the garage, went back to the house, and sat on the couch across from the woman. From the ceiling, right before her face, hung the cross. At six-thirty, her eyes opened, like the eyes of a sleeper who has a definite job to do upon wakening. When she saw the cross, she jerked her eyes from it with a sudden, rattling gasp. "'Why are you so afraid of it?' he asked. Her eyes suddenly on him made him shudder. The way they glowed, the way her tongue licked across her red lips as if it were a separate life in her mouth. A guttural rumbling filled her throat like the sound of a dog defending its bone. The cross. Why are you afraid of it? She strained against her bonds, her hands raking across the sides of her chair, her eyes burning into him. The cross. Look at it, he yelled. A sound of terror-stricken whining came from her. Her eyes moved wildly around the room, great white eyes with pupils like specks of soot. He grabbed at her shoulder, then jerked his hand back. It was dripping blood from raw teeth wounds. He lashed out, smashing her cheek and snapping her head to the side. Ten minutes later, he threw her body out the front door and slammed it again in their faces. Faintly, he heard through the soundproofing, the sound of them fighting like jackals for the spoils. Later, he went to the bathroom and poured alcohol into the teeth gouges, enjoying fiercely the burning pain in his flesh. Neville bent over and picked up a little soil in his right hand. He ran it between his fingers, crumbling the dark lumps into grit. How many of them, he wondered, slept in the soil as the story went? He shook his head. Precious few. Where did the legend fit in, then? He closed his eyes, let the dirt filter down slowly from his hand. Was there any answer? If only he could remember whether those who slept in soil were the ones who had returned from death. He might have theorized then. But he couldn't remember. Another unanswerable question, then. Add it to the question that had occurred to him the night before. What would a Muslim vampire do if faced with a cross? The barking sound of his laugh in the silent morning air startled him. Good God, he thought. It's been so long since I've laughed I've forgotten how. It sounded like the cough of a sick hound. Well, that's what I am, after all, isn't it? He decided. A very sick dog. There had been a light dust storm about four that morning. Strange how it brought back memories. Virginia, Kathy, all those horrible days. He caught himself. No, no, there was danger there. 
It was thinking of the past that drove him to the bottle. He was just going to have to accept the present. He found himself wondering again why he chose to go on living. Probably, he thought, there's no real reason. I'm just too dumb to end it all. Well, he clapped his hands with false decision. What now? He looked around as if there was something to see along the stillness of Cimarron Street. All right, he decided. Let's see if the running water bit makes sense. He buried a hose under the ground and ran it into a small trough constructed of wood. The water ran through the trough and out another hole into more hosing, which conducted the water into the earth. When he'd finished, he went in and took a shower, shaved and took the bandage off his hand. The wound had healed cleanly. But then he hadn't been overly concerned about that. Time had more than proved to him that he was immune to their infection. At 6.30 he went into the living room and stood before the peephole. Then, when nothing happened, he made himself a drink. When he got back to the peephole, he saw Ben Cortman come walking onto the lawn. "'Come out, Neville,' Robert Neville muttered and Cortman echoed the words in a loud cry. Neville stood there motionless, looking at Ben Cortman. Ben hadn't changed much. His hair was still black, his body inclined to corpulence, his face still white. But there was a beard on his face now, mostly under the nose, thinner around his chin and cheeks and under his throat. That was the only real difference, though. Ben had always been immaculately shaved in the old days, smelling of cologne each morning when he picked up Neville to drive to the plant. It was strange to stand there looking at Ben Cortman, a Ben completely alien to him now. Once he had spoken to that man, ridden to work with him, talked about baseball and politics, later on about the disease, about how Virginia and Kathy were getting along, about how Frida Cortman was... Neville shook his head. There was no point in going into that. The past was as dead as Cortman. Again he shook his head. The world's gone mad, he thought. The dead walk about and I think nothing of it. The return of corpses has become trivial. How quickly one accepts the incredible if only one sees it enough. Neville stood there, sipping his whiskey, and wondering who it was that Ben reminded him of. He felt for some time that Cortman reminded him of somebody, but for the life of him he couldn't think who. He shrugged. What was the difference? He put down the glass on the windowsill and went into the kitchen. He turned on the water there and went back to the peephole. There was another man and a woman on the lawn. None of the three was speaking to each other. They never did. They walked and walked about on restless feet, circling each other like wolves, never looking at each other once, having hungry eyes only for the house and their prey inside the house. Then Cortman saw the water running through the trough and went over to look at it. After a moment he lifted his white face, and Neville saw him grinning. Neville stiffened. Cortman was jumping over the trough, then back again. Neville felt his throat tightening. The bastard knew. With rigid legs, he pistoned himself into the bedroom and with shaking hands pulled one of the pistols out of the bureau drawer. 
Cortland was just about finished stamping in the sides of the trough when the bullet struck him in the left shoulder. He staggered back with a grunt and flopped onto the sidewalk with a kicking of legs. Neville fired again and the bullet wind up off the cement, inches from Cortman's twisting body. Neville stood there watching, smelling the acrid fumes of the pistol smoke. Then the woman blocked his view of Cortman and started jerking up her dress. Neville pulled back and slammed the tiny door over the peephole. He wasn't going to let himself look at that. In the first second of it, he had felt that terrible heat dredging up from his loins, like something ravenous. Later, he looked out again and saw Ben Cortman pacing around, calling for him to come out. And in the moonlight, he suddenly realized who Cortman reminded him of. The idea made his chest shudder with suppressed laughter, and he turned away as the shaking reached his shoulders. Oliver Hardy! Cortman was almost a dead ringer for the roly-poly comedian. A little less plump, that was all. Even the mustache was there now. Oliver Hardy flopping on his back under the driving impact of bullets. Oliver Hardy always coming back for more, no matter what happened. Ripped by bullets, punctured by knives, flattened by cars, smashed under collapsing chimneys and boats, submerged in water, flung through pipes. And always returning, patient and bruised. That was who Ben Cortman was, a hideously malignant Oliver Hardy, buffeted and long-suffering. My God, it was hilarious. He couldn't stop laughing because it was more than laughter. It was release. Tears flooded down his cheeks. The glass in his hand shook so badly the liquor spilled all over him and made him laugh harder. Then the glass fell, thumping on the rug, as his body jerked with spasms of uncontrollable amusement, and the room was filled with his gasping, nerve-shattered laughter. Later he cried. He thought he'd found the answer. It was a matter of losing the blood they lived by. It was hemorrhage. He drove it into the stomach, into the shoulder, into the neck with a single mallet blow, into the legs and the arms, and always the same result, the blood pulsing out, slick and crimson over the white flesh. But then he found the woman in the small green and white house, and when he drove in the stake, the dissolution was so sudden it made him lurch away and lose his breakfast. When he had recovered enough to look, he saw on the bedspread what looked like a row of salt and pepper, just about as long as the woman had been. It was the first time he had seen such a thing. Shaken by the sight, he went out of the house on trembling legs and sat in the car, drinking the flask empty. But even liquor couldn't drive away the vision. It had been so quick. With the sound of the mallet blow still in his ears, she had dissolved before his eyes. He recalled talking once to a co-worker who had studied mortuary science about the mausoleums where people were stored in vacuum drawers and never changed their appearance. But you just let some air in, the man had said, and boom! They look like a row of salt and pepper, just like that, and he snapped his fingers. The woman had been long dead then. 
Maybe she was one of the vampires who had originally started the plague. God only knew how many years she'd been cheating death. He was too unnerved to do any more that day, or for days to come. He stayed home and drank, and let the bodies pile up on the lawn, and let the outside of the house fall into disrepair. For days he sat and thought about the woman, and no matter how hard he tried not to, no matter how much he drank, he kept thinking about Virginia. He kept seeing himself entering the crypt, lifting the coffin lid. He thought he was coming down with something, so palsied and nervous, so cold and ill did he feel. Is that what she looked like? Morning. A sun-bright hush, broken only by the chorus of birds. A cloud of silent heat was suspended over everything on Cimarron Street. Virginia Neville's heart had stopped. He sat beside her on the bed, looking down at her white face. His body was immobile, an insensible block of flesh and bone. His eyes did not blink, and the movement of his breathing was so slight it seemed to have stopped altogether. Something had happened to his brain. In the second he had felt no heartbeat beneath his fingers, the core of his brain seemed to have petrified until his head felt like stone. Then slowly, as though he were discovering some objective phenomenon, he found his body trembling, his body shuddered without end, one mass of nerve bereft of will. For more than an hour he sat in this palsied state, eyes fastened dumbly on her face. It's a dream, he argued vainly. It was as if a voice spoke the words aloud in his head. Virginia. He kept turning from one side to another, his eyes searching around the room as if there was something to be found, as if he had mislaid the exit from this house of horror. In his mind he saw a scene enacted once again. The great fire, crackling, roaring yellow, sending dense, grease-thick clouds into the sky. Kathy's tiny body in his arms the man coming up and snatching her away as if he were taking a bundle of rags, the man lunging into the dark mist, carrying his baby, him standing there while pile-driver blows of horror drove him down with their impact. And suddenly he darted forward with a berserk scream, Kathy! The arms caught him, the men in masks drawing him back, his shoes gouged frenziedly at the earth, digging two ragged trenches as they dragged him away, terrified screams flooding from him. Then the sudden bolt of numbing pain in his jaw, the daylight swept over with clouds of night, the hot trickle of liquor down his throat, the coughing, a gasping, and then he had been sitting, silent and rigid in Ben Cortman's car, staring as they drove away at the gigantic pall of smoke 
that rose about the earth like a black wraith of all earth's despair. Remembering, he closed his eyes suddenly, and his teeth pressed together until they ached. No! He wouldn't put Virginia there. Not if they killed him for it. With a slow, stiff motion, he walked to the front door and went out on the porch. Stepping off onto the yellowing lawn, he started down the block for Ben Cortman's house. He stood rigidly before the door, his mind still pulsing. I don't care if it's the law. I don't care if refusal means death. I won't put her there. His fist thudded on the door. Ben! Silence in the house of Ben Cortman. Ben! Damn him, where was he? With a frenzied gasp, he lurched against the door and it flew open. It had been unlocked. He walked into the silent living room. Ben! He said loudly. Ben! I need your car! They were in the bedroom, silent and still in their daytime comas, lying apart on the twin beds. He stood there for a moment, looking down at them. There were some wounds on Frida's white neck that had crusted over with dried blood. There was no wound on Ben's throat. And he heard a voice in his mind that said, If only I'd wake up. He shook his head. No, there was no waking up from this. He found the car keys on the bureau and picked them up. He turned away and left the silent house behind. He parked in the driveway before his garage and turned off the motor. The house was cool and silent. His shoes scuffed quietly over the rug, then clicked on the floorboards in the hall. He stood motionless in the doorway, looking at her. She still lay on her back, arms at her sides, the white fingers slightly curled. She looked as if she were sleeping. He turned away and went back into the living room. What was he going to do? Choices seemed pointless now. What did it matter what he did? Life would be equally purposeless, no matter what his decision was. Why did I get the car then, he wondered. I can't burn her, he thought. I won't. But what else was there? Funeral parlors were closed. Everyone, without exception, had to be transported to the fires immediately upon death. Only flames could destroy the bacteria that caused the plague. No. If there was anything left in the world, it was his vow that she would not be burned in the fire. An hour passed before he finally reached a decision. Then he went and got her needle and thread. He kept sewing until only her face showed. Then, fingers trembling, he sewed the blanket together over her mouth, over her nose, her eyes. For a long minute he stood there breathing hoarsely. Then he bent over and worked his arms under her inert form. Come on, baby, he whispered. The words seemed to loosen everything. He felt himself shaking, felt the tears running slowly down his cheeks. He put her in the back seat and got in the car. He took a deep breath and reached for the starter button. He drew back. 
Getting out of the car again, he went into the garage and got the shovel. He twitched as he came out, seeing the man across the street approaching slowly. He put the shovel in the back and got in the car. Wait! The man's shout was hoarse. Robert Neville sat there silently as the man came shuffling up. Could you let me bring my mother too? The man asked stiffly. Neville's brain wouldn't function. He thought he was going to cry again, but he caught himself. I'm not going there, he said. The man looked at him blankly. But you're... I'm not going to the fire, I said, Neville blurted, and jerked the gear shift into reverse. Please, begged the man. I'm not going there, Neville shouted. But it's the law, the man shouted back, suddenly furious. The car raced back quickly into the street. As he sped away, he saw the man standing at the curb, watching him leave. Fool, his mind grated. Do you think I'm going to throw my wife into a fire? The streets were deserted. As he drove, he looked at the huge lot on the right side of the car. He couldn't use any of the cemeteries. They were locked and watched. Men had been shot trying to bury their loved ones. He turned right into a quiet street that ended in the lot. No one saw him carry her from the car or into the high-weeded lot. No one saw him put her down on an open patch of ground. Slowly he dug, pushing the shovel into the soft earth. Sweat ran in many lines down his cheeks as he dug, and the earth swam dizzily before his eyes. At last the hole was finished. This was the part he dreaded. Gently, as carefully as he could, he lowered her into the shallow grave, making sure that her head did not bump. He straightened up and looked down at her still body sewn up in the blanket. For the last time, he thought. Eleven wonderful years ending in a filled-in trench. The world shimmered through endless distorting tears while he pressed back the hot earth, patting it around her still body with nerveless fingers. He lay on his bed, half-drunk and staring at the black ceiling. His unkempt hair rustled on the pillow as he looked towards the clock. Two in the morning. Two days since he'd buried her. He sat up and dropped his legs over the edge of the bed. A cold breeze was rattling the window blinds. He stared at the blackness. What's left? he asked himself. What's left, anyway? Wearily he stood up and stumbled into the bathroom. He threw water into his face and fumbled for a towel. He stood suddenly rigid in the cold blackness. Someone was turning the knob on the front door. He felt a chill move up the back of his neck and his scalp began prickling. It's Ben, he heard his mind offering. He's come for the car keys. A fist thudded against the door, strengthless, as if it had fallen against the wood. He moved into the living room, his heartbeat thudding heavily. His hand recoiled from the doorknob as it turned under his fingers. With one step, he backed into the wall and stood there, breathing harshly, his widened eyes staring. 
Someone was mumbling on the porch, muttering words he couldn't hear. He braced himself, then with a lunge he jerked open the door and let the moonlight in. He couldn't even scream. He just stood, rooted to the spot, staring dumbly at Virginia. Robert, she said. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.